I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. Nerdapalooza, the world's largest nerd music festival, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other fine Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hey people, Steve Bloom here, voice of Spike Spiegel, Wolverine, etc. You know, your friendly neighborhood psycho voice monkey. Anyway, you're listening to the Nerdy Show. Stay tuned, tell a friend. They need people to listen or they'll close down and I will personally come to your house and take your daughter. Hey guys, I'm Cap. This is a very special episode of Nerdy Show. Originally, we were going to have just one video game-centered episode. We are going to review Bioshock Infinite, and we're going to interview none other than Jeremy Soule. He did the work for every Elder Scrolls game since Morrowind, Square's Secret of Evermore, and other titles uh, you may know like Guild Wars 2, Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights. However, both discussions, they turned uh, giant size. So what we've done is we've split the episode into two parts. This first part will feature our initial spoiler-free basic review of Bioshock Infinite and the first part of our interview with Jeremy Soule. And part two will feature the second part of our interview with Jeremy Soule and also our spoilerific post-game thoughts on Bioshock Infinite. So here's part one. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Holy shit, that was a whole, like, style change. I know, right? Hi, guys. I'm Cap. I'm Doug. I'm Tony. I'm Brandon. And this is a very special episode of Nerdy Show. We're talking about video game related topics. And in this episode, we have a massive interview with none other than Jeremy Soule. John Williams of video game composing. As he's often called, definitely the uh, biggest name in video game composing on this side of the Pacific. He's currently promoting his Kickstarter for a symphony called The Northerner. It's his first symphony and a large scale personal project that you can help support and get some pretty incredible rewards for doing so. So it's quite an honor, and it's a thrilling conversation, as you will see. Tying it all together, we got, well, the biggest uh, video game release in recent memory, why it's Bioshock Infinite. It's on the back of every single comic book I've bought for the last two months. (laughs) And it's pretty great. (laughs) Yes, it is. And there's a lot of metaphysics involved. This is a very uh, quantum-oriented game. It's got a different sort of story structure from the previous one, and you'll see that there's a strange synergy between Bioshock infinite and uh the things the things on jeremy's soul's mind it's almost as though these things were predestined okay so here's the deal we want you to listen to this episode this is going to be an awesome episode so we're not going to touch bioshock spoilers before we go any further to make it clear everyone else but me has beaten bioshock yeah please no spoilers we'll have a very clearly noted place where doug will i will leave the room leave the room because i I haven't played it yet and i don't want it to be spoiled for me anyway guys 
We're going to dive right in. We're going to be interviewing Jeremy Soule in just a little bit. But uh, first and foremost, let's talk about Bioshock. Obviously, uh, this game is uh, not incredible. Well, incredible, yes. Well, it's not it's, directly tied to the previous two games. You can pick this up and play it right now. No, absolutely. You don't have I to mean, play the others. It's not tied to any Bioshock title. It, it's in a similar sort of theme. There are parallels. It's mm-hmm. a man in a city it, that is in a place that you wouldn't expect a city to be. <laughs> right. But thematically, the games are very different, and there's no direct correlation <clears> between. <throat> you're not going to sit there and say Booker DeWitt becomes Andrew Ryan. No. <laughs> no. But let's back up a minute. First off, this game, they've been working on it for six years. Irrational Games has been working on it for six years. And a lot of people think that it's the same developer that did all three. Really? There wasn't, because the one who did Bioshock 2 was different, Yeah, completely different different team. The the same team that made Bioshock 1, as soon as that was done, they worked on this game for the next six years, which is why it's so incredible. They didn't do anything in between. That's awesome. And uh, it's It's, not... It's the same play style, though. It's a first-person shooter. You wield magic with the the right trigger, and you're... Vigors, as they're called. Yeah, Vigors, yeah. And you you shoot stuff with your left trigger. The gameplay is a lot better. There are much more options options in the areas where there are combat there's the, much more the you combat, can do yeah the, the combat is really streamlined so and choices. one thing that i would because i mean everybody who's listening to this episode has probably seen the trailers they know that the sky hooks like going around on these skylines yeah major part of it when i saw the original gameplay trailers i was looking at that and saying that all looks pre-rendered that looks like it's scripted how is how is that going to work in combat but it does work it works brilliantly it, it is so much fun it adds so much variety and verticality to the combat segments that it is breathtaking and to play to watch to experience this game is uh just a big old art piece as far as um you know set dressing and everything uh there's a lot of layers and complexity in the environment building here that mm-hmm. is really is. the art direction and, and the way everything looks is one of the main uh, moving points for me buying the game but so the story is also the other yeah. basically the most important thing but there are problems though i mean this is this is a really good game but it's not perfect no just to give you guys a little bit of a base in case you're just getting into this because i mean you know who knows this game is set in the 1910s an alternate reality 1910s where a massive floating city was unveiled at the world's fair and uh People were living on it. People could leave to go live in the city. It was part of America. And then it ended up um, some fundamental disagreements and it seceded from the Union. After the Boxer Rebellion, yeah, they they decided that they were more America than America. Yep. That America was wrong. So they were going to be America and America was no longer America. And uh, then it disappeared and kind of to a degree fell out of the public consciousness. And you play a very mysterious, strange guy who's got some dirty dealings to do. And you get rocketed up to the city of Columbia where the girl wipe away the debt. Yeah. And uh, the story is slow moving at the beginning, but it, it picks up pretty fast in a, in a pretty phenomenal way. The opening for the game is at least half an hour, depending on how you play it. The, the for me, it was like an hour. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those where at the beginning of the game, the story takes a backseat to the world building. And the world mm-hmm. building is as good as anything that Irrational has ever done, because they do a really good job of just showing you bits and pieces of a story without actually saying, oh, and now this is happening. And look, there's racial inequality. Yeah, that's a big thing about this game. Um, it is very much of its time period, and you're dealing with um, a dominant mentality from America at that time period of just a massive, massive mm-hmm. racial inequality. 
inequality and and racism, not just towards Asians and blacks, but also <laughs> Irish, you know, and it's very unapologetically they of its time. Yeah, they yeah. don't dumb it down for censorship. They go all out. Uh, in Now, before we dive too much into that, I want to share a silly bit of this kind of world building that is one of my favorite <laughs> okay. set pieces. As long of as it's the no game. spoilers. It's not directly related to any particular character or story thread. As you're going along, you find a folding chair with a shotgun on it. Now, in any other game, this would just be where an ammo drop was. But if you pay attention to what's going on around this folding chair that overlooks the sky, you see a bunch of pigeons hung from strings on the fence. So all of a sudden, instead of just being, oh, here's where you find the shotgun, it's here's where somebody was sitting and shooting birds to pass the time in Colombia. That's fun. Mm. So you got to do something. Plus, there's so it, many birds up there. It kind of reminds me of um. They're like the rats of that city. You think? You know? <laughs> I mean, they are. You could just walk up, get the shotgun, and walk away. You don't have to pay attention to the dead birds. But if you you read into it, you read into it like, oh yeah, and here's where Steve McGrew, after his thirtieth year on the job, just got tired one day, went out with a shotgun and hunted a few birds, went home to Irene and it's the just... storytelling via interactive set pieces, which is really great. It's actually very similar to what mm-hmm. they do at um at Disney with the at least at Hollywood Studios anyway, the one in Orlando. With Tower of Terror, most of the story is told not by um, hologram Rod Sterling, but by <laughs> the weird stuff that you see as you're walking through the line. Like There uh, are a lot of little details that they paid attention to, and, and you can miss them if you're not looking for them. It's such an intricate game. I mean, attention to detail, craft, and the beauty of the art <laughs> that goes into it are some of the things that we're going to just keep harping on. It is absolutely an experience. It, it, I think more than anything else, this game is something that from the moment you start to the moment the credits start rolling... It is an experience. It's very dynamic, and uh, I mean the story is super interesting. Now, Doug, you actually you sat in on the first what half hour or so of the game. Yeah, um, a couple of buddies of mine were fans of this uh, YouTube channel called Robaz, where he'll he'll do like playthroughs of uh, different games, usually very popular games, some not so popular, but he's always entertaining to watch. And none of us had owned the game yet, and we were just dying to see something, and we didn't and we didn't exactly want things completely spoiled by someone just saying something. So like, let's just watch the first like half hour, and he does the playthrough of like the first half hour 45 minutes maybe even one hour i don't remember the exact time but we're just sitting there and it was like we're watching a movie and i don't mean like the quality of the game i just mean like our reaction to another human playing the game was like a film like we were enjoying it on a level of a passive watching experience i mean that's something that's really incredible about this game about the world that you're experiencing because it is difficult to do that in a video game. it is it is because i mean i'm one who as an older brother i've had a lot of experience forcing others to watch me play video games <laughs> and this has been something i i love to share my experiences with the people who i'm playing these mm-hmm. games with and i've tried to do this with my wife a few times in the past hasn't worked this game she was able to sit and experience it because she was drawn in by the world she was drawn in by what was going on drawn in by mm-hmm. the stories that weren't being told and of course by the story that was being told because the tale of Booker DeWitt and eventually the most badass Disney princess that has ever been put in a video game. <laughs> she does have the Disney eyes. The game excited me so much that I wanted to share it with someone and I ran out and bought it for someone <laughs> who also at the same time just bought it for themselves. <laughs> I was like, someone needs to play this right now and I need to know how they feel about and it. I was gonna, but there was Brandon at my door not half an hour after I walked home with it. <laughs> Fortunately, I hadn't unwrapped it yet. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, I Brandon. Sh- well, there, now, because of the themes of this game, I, I wanted to share a few fun facts because it's, it has actually sparked a lot of controversy from all what? sides. Controversy. Here, here's the thing, okay? So the right I'm wing, not surprised. the right wing 
Republican elitists basically accused the game of being pro-immigrant and anti-white. What? Left, <laughs> left-wing left liberals accused the game of tearing down the labor movements in the U.S. Currently, Ken Levine, uh, his relatives were actually... That's the, the head of Irrational Yes, his, his relatives uh, were actually in the Tea Party movement. They were offended greatly by this game. Um, <laughs> so in other words, you're telling me... People who have not played the game and have strong political opinions, but don't play the game, yeah, they need to get have a strong it. opinion the, of the, the game. Reason, no, the game so. is so uh, compelling because of these themes. And uh, I haven't even gotten to the, all the religious people that offended, but I don't need to get into that. Now, one thing that kind of cracks me up about what you just brought up, the right wing is angry at the leftist part of it. Mm-hmm. The lefties are angry at the right side of it. Yes. So that sounds to me almost like it's a balanced portrayal <laughs> of these <laughs> events. No, what you're saying makes too much sense. You know, I, and these I, people haven't played the game either, just like that, so you that's, know. That, that type of crap gets me angry, but I've, I've tried my best to stop caring about what politicians and groups think of games back when they were mad at the first Mass Effect for having a sex scene in it. And then when you get to it, it's like, Yo, it's oh, not even that was, sex. That was it's romantic. Like, you know, yeah. like it wasn't even it wasn't even a thing. It's it was like you a, lay down all and you go to sleep yeah, together. It's like, yeah. oh, they're in love now. And you know, mm-hmm. nobody's paying attention to the genocidal maniacs who are sitting there and saying that it is glorifying their position. Because yeah. let's face it, you kill a lot of people throughout this Yeah, game. dude, the same people who are like, oh, this is about bigotry. This is, oh, this you're, is... Meanwhile, this, you're this is, shooting people like, in the face like, with shotguns. This is anti-white because you're shooting white people. It's like, dude, have you played any other game in history? Like, is this, this, I, I think it just so happens to be a game where you're shooting mostly white people that actually has a racial dialogue. Every game I've played, exactly, you shoot mostly exactly. white people. Escape from Wolfenstein, I'm shooting all white people. Yeah. There's Resident those Evil. Were, those five. were Nazis, though. <laughs> <laughs> they're still white people. Just they're, saying. they're the best white, white people, people too. if you believe what they were saying. People were mad. People were mad about Castle Wolfenstein back when it came out too. So it's like, dude, you never. We're never going to get away from it. Nintendo changed all the swastikas. Mm-hmm. I remember that. The political backdrop of this game it does build the world, though. It builds the world, it builds the time, it gives you an idea as to what's going on, but it doesn't impact the lead character's story in any major way, because no. he's there for one purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's Get the girl <laughs> and wipe away the He does the not want to deal with any of that no, shit. No, he, he actually really doesn't, doesn't want to be there, no. So he just wants to get the hell out. Like, the, the, oh. only, the, the only controversy that I would care about is one among the gamers who play the game and play video games in general. If it's someone from the outside looking in saying, okay. you know, I oh, got one for you. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Here's one right now. I think that the gameplay, which is tried and true very fun bioshock gameplay and the complex story of bioshock infinite hit a point where they don't play well together anymore and it kind of screws it up i think they needed to assess themselves and say what kind of story do we want to tell how important is it is this the appropriate gameplay for it so you're saying you you feel like the themes of the game were almost too mature for the gameplay I, i feel that what they were trying to express with the story was outdone by the fact that at the end of the day to get from point a to point b you bet you shoot and you throw crap at people and you shoot and you throw crap at people and uh that action doesn't actually mesh with the human complexity of the things that you're asked to take on as far as the story well, it's true because there are well i guess that will be spoiler so we can't get into that but, but so like just so i'm trying to like for me there to are understand. moments where you don't have to fight they kind of play that up but then it ends up ultimately you but, really but you're saying you, so you think like gameplay elements of like shooting people would cheapen the story I, I, I elements? think at a, at a point you're doing it because that's what you have to do to further things in this game because those are the mechanics that's why you're doing it but the story based on where it's going and the kind of things it's telling in a lot of ways outgrows the gameplay see like now that's that we could go on about that i mean i agree but i I think that's to me that's a great sign that games are progressing to a point where we're asking bigger things of them like i mean i don't mean that in a bad way i mean like oh the story is so great i wish the gameplay kind of meshed with it more it's like Dude, 10 years ago, you would not have brought up that point at all because it would have been about 
you know, uh, like do Castle Wolfenstein. No one played the original Castle Wolfenstein. Was like, oh man, well you know, the story they were the the commentary they were trying to make about the lone man fighting against an army of Nazis and is, Hitler's head in a jar. Just... Yeah, well, and the, the way they portrayed him as the robot at the end coming out, like uh, clearly he, they were saying that he was a soulless machine that if you could kill that many people, Absolutely. you know, but you yourself are a soulless machine uh, for killing thing, that many people. Here, here's another thing. I love that you have to explore to understand the world and the story in all Bioshock games. Part of the development of the story if you're playing it straight through you get the conflict and that's it you have to find all of the recordings and experience all the things in the world mm -hmm. to really understand the backstory mm -hmm. of the characters some of the key motivations for mm -hmm. primary characters and you have to really live in this world to understand how it put together and all the facts of it mm -hmm. however i want all the voxophones the voxophones the devices in this game mm -hmm. that, that feature uh, character recordings and really i mean seriously you have no idea what's going on in this game unless you collect all the voxophones well that means that every room i go into i meticulously tear through it and try to get everything it's true i, I still couldn't find and I, yeah me neither i didn't even there are places i, I couldn't get 76. into 76 i and i think i, I was about that the, the only the only oh, part yeah. of the game the, one of the parts of the game i saw is what's a voxophone what's a voxophone <laughs> <laughs> he's like i'm not paying for that buddy he's like relax it's just a demo or whatever i mean for those of you who are going obviously most of you should be going out to play this game because it's an experience that every gamer who enjoys a good game a good story should have the voxophones adds so, there are some in there that are moving to the they move me to the point of tears well, here's the thing about that, though, and I, I really applaud it, and I think it's it's great, except it's another thing that goes too far. I enter a room, I open up the trash cans, I eat all the apples inside, like, I, <laughs> I, I, I charge you a desk, pull out all the cash, fuck it, whatever, smoke a pack of cigarettes by accident, well, I lose a little bit of health, so what, just charging through, got I gotta check, I have to check everything, check everything, get everything out of it, you eat it automatically, you're just an all-eating, all-shitting monster. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure, the, I'm sure the, 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 the pro-smoker lobbyists have a problem with the, the smoke uh, <laughs> taking is, away your health. Yeah. As well, no, that's Bioshock like, Four is called the All well, Shitting Monster, <laughs> All Eating All Shitting Monster. Um, and the the thing is, is that that actually harms the narrative experience because I will ruin my like experience of the world <laughs> by trying to dig deeper into the world to get the experience. Right? Because yeah, if you were really else. if you were really that guy, you wouldn't be running around digging through trash cans. And uh... I didn't have that experience at all. Even though I was searching everything, I mean, there was that part of me that recognized, yes, I'm playing a game. It never took me out of the experience. It might have removed me from the direct narrative, but I always felt like this is Booker. This is what he's doing with the task at hand. Well, I mean, I could make the same argument for when I'm playing Skyrim, and it's like, uh, you know, Ooh, I am, take, take, take. Yeah, I'm, I'm the, Bold. I am the Dovahkiin. I'm gonna save the whole world and kill all the dragons. I wear all the bone armor, and I walk into However, a town. There's a difference, though. There's a big difference, which is you can take a look in a basket in Skyrim, and you can see, oh, there's all these things in there. Okay, whatever. You know, in in Bioshock, you typically you just say yes to everything. You're like, look at that. Okay, sure, whatever. And you just bam, bam, bam. It's a stream gameplay style that's fun and great for what it is it's really dynamic as far as like a battle style and a, and a gameplay style and all that i feel that it compromises a certain amount of the visual storytelling that they're trying to invoke i guess mm. i have to say yeah that aspect i mean is not as great as the storytelling the storytelling in this game i, I liked so much that I didn't, like you were saying earlier, the gameplay doesn't catch up to it at certain points. Well, you also got to think, for the people who help design the world, they want you to get your money's worth out of, like, being they able to explore to every they bit. Because they, they spent six years building yeah. the thing. And some of know? the items are randomly generated, too. I mean, the trash can could be filled with all money, it could be all apples. So sometimes it, it is randomly generated. Or rotten generated. apples. So, or rotten I mean, apples. One thing I do want to stress is we are saying that there are these elements. 
I don't feel that those elements detract enough from the game that the story element is truly irreparably compromised. It's not. It's not an even remotely irreparably compromised. It's still a great game. I think that it's an, it was when I, and this is not treading spoiler territories, but basically when I got towards the end of the game, I sort of realized where I'd been and what I was doing and that I felt like the gameplay was working in many ways against the experience. Like I wasn't experiencing the game in the right way because I had to go get these things. I had to dig through. We'll get into that later in the spoilerific discussion at the end of this episode. But I, I think that it started an interesting dialogue and is hopefully one that this game studio and other game studios will look back on and think, okay, we've learned from this. This is a great game that has an interesting little quirk there. How can we improve upon it? How can we tell a story in spite of the kind of gameplay that it usually has? Or, I think they will I mean, learn from it because this studio does. Yeah. Because I mean, like I remember way back when you would play a first person shooter and you would find the notes left behind by somebody that was like the big deal it's like wow a little backstory about a guy who came into this building and he was chased by the monsters and he didn't make it and now it's like we're so used to that now it's like a trope and yeah. and i mean this irrational games is one of the most famous studios for doing that system shock 2 had the logs doom 3 wound yeah. up having the logs and i realized that wasn't irrational games but they took that from irrational games right right the original bioshock made a big deal out of these this backstory and now it is so saturated in the first person shooter market right it's one of those where it's like oh it's one of those games but when irrational does it because well it's like i said gamers are expecting more and more quality which is why it becomes all the more disappointing when something bad happens hey so here's something else that's interesting the person who composed the music was a, a guy named and i hope i'm pronouncing right gary uh shy man and the music was oh, uh yeah. the music i really enjoyed in this game but i, I you know it, it was overshadowed by the story i think completely it worked well in situations but I just wanted to say this uh, composer also did the music Magnum PI and the A Team. So, so just so you know what kind of, of music you're getting into. That's kind of incredible. <laughs> he does a lot but of American I, music. Yeah, an awesome part about the music is if the it, music nerds in you will love this game. Yeah, keep a sharp ear. Keep a sharp ear. That's all we're gonna say for now. We'll get into this later. Anyway, so we gotta we gotta get to this interview with Jeremy Soul. What we're gonna play for you now is is very very cool. Back in 2004. Jeremy Soule contributed to Overclocked Remix. What? Yep. He did a rearrangement of uh, Terra's theme from Final Fantasy VI, which he calls Squaresoft Variation. The The letter he sent uh, along with his submission said, I just wanted to let you know that I support what you're doing with game music. Here's something I just completed in both your honor and Nobuo Imatsu's. Thank you. 
With us on the line, we have none other than Jeremy Soule, one of the most prolific composers of uh, video game scores. Dude, you've been making uh, music for video games since the mid-90s when you were 19. Yeah, it was, it was my, uh, my first real job. That's awesome. You don't, you don't want to know what I was doing when I was 19. <laughs> Everything else pales in comparison. Well, it and, depends and, on what portion of 19 you're asking, because uh, I think it was mowing lawns and delivering newspapers for part of that 19th year. <laughs> it's a hell of a segue. Well, and then, and then you know, Square of America. No uh, big. No problem. <laughs> right, exactly. That's how it happened. You've launched a Kickstarter uh, mm-hmm. to fund your first major personal project, a symphony called The Northerner. And you've got a uh, nearly 20-year career, and this is a big first. Why now? That's a good question. I didn't want to be too old to start a first symphony. I mean, it's, uh, I'm actually a little behind the ball. I mean, I think Mozart started, you know, his symphonic career before he was old enough to buy a beer. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's pretty much the truth. And, you know, I mean, for me, um, I feel like, you know, I've gone through enough music and I've written enough things that, uh, I have enough tools in my box and I want to take this to the next level. I'm actually doing this to really improve you know, my writing and what I'm doing as a composer. Improve? Yeah, he like, improve. <laughs> you think there's room for improvement? Okay. Oh, there always is. No, there always is. You know, you're, you're only good, as good as your last eight bars, as they say in the music business. So um, I'm trying to, uh, to take my game up. And I like this whole process because, you know, instead of a video game company being my bosses, um, everyone is. You know, I get a chance to talk to uh, people on an individual basis, on a daily basis. And really uh, find out about, you know, their passion for music and what the Northerner means to them and their enthusiasm for what I've done and what some of their hopes and aspirations are. And so I really hope that this campaign inspires other composers and other people who who would like to try composing because it really is a a very fulfilling career and I've been really lucky. You know, the campaign's doing really well. Uh, You were originally just asking for um, Mm 10,000 and uh, as of this recording, you've got 75 and working towards the stretch goal of 100,000. And uh, Mm -hmm. if anybody wants to get in on this, any of you listeners out there and get all the wonderful perks available, it ends on Sunday, April 14th. So there is time yet. You can get on the ground floor. There is. There is definitely time. And, you know, I think for me, it was always about the social dynamics of Kickstarter. And that's why we didn't have a very high goal, because, well, honestly, I didn't want to rely on it to be able to to fund anything because, you know, most projects are in between five and ten thousand dollars. And I really didn't think we would be very much different. And I say we, um, I'm doing this in coordination with my agent uh, at the Max Steiner Agency. And, you know, it, it was a huge surprise. I mean, when we met our goal in just a little over 24 hours, I was amazed. You know, these rewards are, um, I think, really cool. And I think that years to come, I think people will be glad that, you know, they've got one of our autographed CDs or they've got a sheet music set or even an autographed page one. And, of course, the grand top tiers are um, to be able to come to the recording session I'm not sure where that session will be yet, but if we can make our stretch goal, um, I would like to be able to take this to um, a world-class recording facility. The lawyers say I can't say publicly where it's going to be, but let's just say may the force be with you, and uh, <laughs> we'll try to we'll try to we'll try to record there. I my intent is to um, to be at a really cool place to record. And, yeah, um, and that is so, a really cool place to record. Yeah, yeah, well, we don't know what it is, but yeah, that's uh, wherever it is you're cool. recording. It must <laughs> be wherever it happens yeah. to be. Wherever it happens to be. Um, uh, regardless of how you, the listener, may support the symphony, uh, whether it's just word of mouth or you know sending good thoughts or or getting involved with some of the reward tiers, it's all valuable. I mean, it's all good energy, and we like to think that making music is something that everyone can be involved in. 
So, so reaching the $10,000 goal within, what was it, 24 hours, has that basically boosted your self-esteem? <laughs> I, I imagine you must be like, wow, I am doing something right. <laughs> well, you know, I think no matter what I think about myself, it's always good for others to think I'm doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean... I'll tell you, um, when we found out about the Classic FM poll that just came out, I think this last weekend, and I ended up in the top five of all uh, classical works of all time. <laughs> wow. Really? You know, the lead-in was uh, from Classic FM. I just did an interview over there, and they, they said, well, how do you feel about, you know, knocking Beethoven out of the top five spots? Wow. Did you beat John Williams? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I, I didn't even want to look at that list. It makes me nervous. <laughs> you know? uh, I do know that my esteemed colleague, Nobu Uematsu, is still the master, and, and he's still a slot above me or two. Mm. And I, I appreciate, you know, everyone going out there and voting and uh, putting us on the map, literally with a classical community. And, and uh, you know, That's some big. people are like, you know, why, is, why is this here? You know, this is not classical music. And to me, it's, you know, you, you don't have to be deceased to make music for the orchestra. I think <laughs> it's very much okay to have living composers on the list. Absolutely. As uh, opposed to decomposers. Ha ha ha. I've heard that one more oh, than boy. once. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times anyway. <laughs> so something you mentioned is you mentioned the collaborative process of working on the Northern, or you've been reaching out um, via the Kickstarter page to your contributors and asking them how they interpret the meaning of the title to the piece. And it, as it's a, you know, it's an instrumental piece, it's very uh, amorphous as to what it is and what it could become. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's music. That's a great thing. You've said that the, uh, the symphony is sort of developing in a uh, collective consciousness between everybody who's been talking to you so far. I was wondering what the piece was before you reached out and what is it now? Well, you know, I was always intimidated to create a symphony because it's one of the hardest things that a composer can undergo. And I pretty much conceived of the symphony at about the same time I decided I was going to go ahead and crowdfund it. So I'd like to think that any idea that I've come up with so far has actually been paired to the energy of this project and to the people. I mean, what is length, width, height, and time? You know, those are the dimensions we experience. And, and um, you know, my, as a composer, obviously you have to think a lot and you have to sort of make a philosophy to understand music because I think music is something that is not black and white, even though the notes on the the page are, are, are definitely black and white. Uh, there's a lot there. And I would have to say that, you know, when I refer to collective consciousness, I, I really believe that in science, there's a lot we don't know. We, we understand sort of how gravity works, but we don't really know what gravity is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
collapse fundamentally. And, uh, you know, maybe some astrophysicists will argue with me. And I, I have astrophysicist friends I like to argue with. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, they're, and they're good guys. But, you know, we talk about, you know, I, I don't know, at last count, were we over 27 dimensions? I think 42. Uh, According to Minute Physics, I think, yeah, it's about there. <laughs> yeah. is, is that about where it is? Because, you know, super string theory and all this fun stuff is really quite fascinating to me coming from my family's background and my grandfather being involved with the nuclear energy program and then my father being a musician and my mother being an art teacher. So I kind of a, had a mix of art, music, and science, really, as part of my background. Grandpa, as part of his hobby when he wasn't working on the nuclear program, was working on audio equipment. And so I learned to be around things like compressors and limiters and microphones and uh, capacitance theory and uh, valves, solid state electronics. I mean, these are all things that were in my background and all that happened at a very early age. And of course, my father, um, he taught instrumental music and he's kind of like Mr. Holland, but without the composing part. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly fighting to get enough funds for the school to be able to maintain its music program. I think the only thing that saved the music programs in America's school systems right now is football. I think uh, if we didn't have a marching band, um, that would be bad for football. And so what's bad for football is definitely bad for music. Wow. Um, yeah. That's an interesting uh, be, being take. In a, I, was, I was in the marching band at my high school and we felt the exact same way. Just like <laughs> that no one cared about us and the only reason we got new uniforms is because the football team got new uniforms first and then we didn't match them so they had to buy new ones for us. So it was terrible. It's a bit yeah, depressing. Nothing, nothing it, against all those football players out there but um, but definitely we, uh, we make football uh, entertaining with our uh, <laughs> sousaphones and whatnot. I, I marched sousaphone one year. So, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know why I did too because my father was in the junior high program and then can you imagine having your own father in junior high as a teacher? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah, yeah, that definitely um, uh, brings back memories. But um, <laughs> but my father, he would never march sousaphones. He, they always sat on the sidelines, and I didn't want to march. So um, Especially with so a sousaphone. I, so that was the year I, I wanted to play sousaphone, but that also happened to be the year when he heard that I was going to play sousaphone. That was the year that he had the most violent maneuvers possible uh, in marching for the sousaphones. I mean, the whole band was standing there, and the sousaphones are going from the left to the right to the left to the right. That was kind of my uh, very physical uh, workout routine uh, involving uh, the bass clef. <laughs> so. On the subject of the collective conscious and everything and how the Northerner is developing, what's some of your favorite responses that you've gotten so far from your supporters? Well, you know, the thing about a concept that's this big, because, you know, when you think about some of the subject matter that symphonies have been dedicated to, like, you know, the ocean or the stars, or it's wide open for individual interpretation. And I think some of my favorites have been some of the more metaphorical responses. You know, people say, when, I'm, when I go north, I feel like I'm going home, you know, and I'd, I'd even had notes like that from people in Ecuador, you know, or Argentina. It, it's interesting. And then also I'd get a lot of uh, photos from people who not only lived up north and some lived, you know, in snowy regions, a lot of Skyrim fans out there. So, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's been a couple of years now, but it's still, uh, the enthusiasm is alive and well. And so I've, I've been seeing a lot of real life, uh, Skyrim, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of photos coming in from everywhere from the black forest to the mountains in Alaska. So it, it's been, it's been great. I mean, really to, to see how everyone else views the world and how they view not just my symphony, but, um, sort of an idea like this. It's awesome. You've said that the Northerner Symphony is uh, all about space. I was wondering, you're taking all these influences from people and so on, but also you've mentioned these landscapes. What do you think about the, the idea of composing for landscapes just as much as you're composing for people? Obviously, with the kind of games that I've been doing over the years, um, you know, the uh, environments are like a second character in the, in the story. And uh, 
a very good friend and I think one of the most brilliant designers in the business has been known to say the emotion of a, of a game or an interactive experience is really twofold. It's in the environment and it's also in the music. So I, I believe that music plays a very close role with, uh, with environments in the interactive space. And to me, that's why I wanted to create a, a, an orchestral work, sort of envision spaces like I'm, like I'm doing um, in my work in games. In one of your project updates, you showcased a digital Gothic cathedral that you built and recorded in, used in Skyrim. I have a sort of an understanding of digital acoustic spaces, but I don't actually know how they're built. And uh, listening to you speak in that space, there was so much depth to it, it sounded so authentic. How do you go about building something like that? Well, there's, there's a couple of ways you can do it. One is you can go to a real cathedral and you can create what's called an impulse response. And how you do that is you have a computer and a microphone and a speaker, and the computer will send out a sort of an impulse. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it's a, what they call a sign sweep. What that does is it, it fills the room with frequency in an orderly fashion. And then what happens is, is the computer then records these frequencies going out and registers how they are being convoluted coming back in. And so the difference between the original signal and what it hears really is the acoustic signature of that room. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, and this is the way we work, is um, for a lot of our spaces, they are synthetic, where we'll actually uh, use modeling tools that are similar to uh, what you might see to create graphics. And you actually use these architectural and, and modeling tools to create a, a physical space. Well, shall we say a synthetic version of a physical space. <laughs> and so in these programs, you can assign things like coefficients. And you know every material that is in an acoustic environment has a coefficient factor uh, or how it radiates sound or sound energy, both reflective and absorptive, and also uh, from a, uh, a dynamics standpoint of barriers. You know, I could go on, but... <laughs> That's really cool. I, had, very I, I didn't realize that we were capable of creating virtual acoustic spaces based purely off of... Math. Um, yeah, math. <laughs> Math alone. <laughs> Certainly, I, I can say this much. Um, there's a lot of math involved. <laughs> you know, not to go and liberate all those algebra and trigonometry teachers out there and, and say, well, see there, you got to, you want to be like Jeremy, you got to do all this trigonometry. <laughs> yeah, you, um, you lost me at no, coefficient. Even simple things like mic placement, you know, you have to understand um, the speed of sound and the distances that are involved. You have to pay attention to things like phase alignments to make sure that, you know, you're capturing, you know, the ideal sound for the stereo image that you're trying to create. I, I don't want to sound um, too nerdy. I guess I'm in the wrong place for that. You're on the wrong <laughs> show, man. You don't want to sound nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love digital worlds. I love getting involved with things like augmented reality and virtual reality. And, you know, to me, when I was working with virtual orchestras, it really is a form of virtual reality. I like to think of the audio monitors that I use as sort of not transducers or speakers. They are actually windows into another room. And when I think of sound that way, it helps me create more of a realistic image in my head of what I'm trying to emulate. And once I have that as sort of a guiding principle, then it's easier for me to go in and work with things like impulse response engines or finite impulse response filtering or infinite impulse response filtering or things like, you know, different ways of doing morphing. You know, I am kind of caught in the middle of a lot of things perceptively. 
<laughs> it sounds like it. Well, I mean, it, what's what's exciting about what you're saying is that it sounds like your understanding of quantum mechanics, or at least the suggestion of it, and then also your acceptance towards the concept of metaphysics coming into play somehow actually helps you compose in these virtual spaces. And I suspect that it aids in you having an awareness of how these things come together and influence the sound. Well, I'd be a really bad quantum physicist, but <laughs> I, I think that... Quantum musician, you know, on the other hand. It, yeah, you know, but you know, the funny thing about it is I have a lot of friends that are electrical engineers and computer scientists, and you know, they, they talk about sort of the random factor that's involved with, uh, with electrons and, and how they move through processors. And, and I'm fascinated with things like how solar flares can actually create more instability uh, in a computer system. I have to say, too, I've noticed something else, <laughs> and it's, it's very strange, and I don't know if it's true, or maybe this is just an anecdotal, useless bit of information, but when I'm about to accomplish something in music, and I've, I've noticed this because looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but when I'm about to complete a very important piece of music, at least in my life, or a piece of music that touches a lot of people, I have an extraordinary amount of computer crashes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not that I'm pushing the hardware any more unusually than I normally do. It's just that something pops. I think uh, if you start looking at things like time-space continuum and, and you, you start thinking about how we are all connected in life and you know whether it's quantum mechanics or you're looking at a quark theory or super string or any of these, there's a lot of mystery out there yeah. still. And the greatest mystery to me is how you can have a composer like Beethoven really profoundly describe humanity in his music and, and have it still touch people hundreds of years later. To me, it's, uh, it's fascinating because, you know, I, I really, as a composer, I, I think about, well, will anyone listen to this music a year from now or two years from now? But could you imagine 150, 200, 300 years of time and people still find some relevance in that math or in that computation that Beethoven was doing? I can tell you still on the yeah. charts. In, a, in, out Katy Perry. in 150 years, I probably won't still be listening to your music. Well, you know what? That may or may not be true, though, because... <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> we'll just see if how much I deteriorate as a writer, but... Um, we'll keep your brain alive, you know, in a jar. <laughs> Futurama. The singularity is near, Brandon. I mean, anything's possible. That's true. <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating. Is there are a lot of longevity experiments going on. and So, you know, the meaning of life is, I think, in our lifetimes, is going to go through a sort of a paradigm shift. Yeah. Well, if I live to be 150 or 170, I will definitely still be listening to that music. You got to listen to the soundtrack to Putt Putt Travels Through Time. <laughs> That's it. You know, and then, and then you realize that your great, 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 great grandkids really hate your music. <laughs> you know? Of course, in the future, I think they'll finally perfect that brain to audio converter. You know, I've heard so many times people come up to me and, and, and they will tell me, I hear symphonies in my head, and if I could just find a way to get it out. And even for myself, I mean, I had a lot of challenges when I was younger, being able to kind of go back and forth the from the subconscious to the conscious. I found what ha would happen is I would hear music like I was hearing the radio. It was beautiful stuff. It didn't take any mental effort for me to hear it. Say you, you do a quick computation, 12 times 12 is, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. <laughs> um, it is whatever, yes. <laughs> we'll say 144 to be safe, but, you know, I made you think when I did that. You did. You, you felt a little bump when I said whatever. And so that's a lot of how it feels to compose for a lot of people. You, you have this sort of mental energy when you compose by what I call rote. It's a way of composing measure by measure. It's almost like stop frame animation. I think it's a very painful way to work, but you can use musical theory and you can construct a tune based on rules, or you can work intuitively 
and allow yourself what so many people have said uh, to me, as I mentioned before, is that you can hear music inside of you without any effort. Getting it out is the difficulty. Uh, some people, you know, work best on a structure like math and some people work best on intuition. I, I think uh, Paul McCartney never had formal music training and he's composed large classical didn't, pieces didn't, and he doesn't like, know how to read music. It didn't like yesterday come to him in a dream? Yeah. That's what he tells well, people. Well, he, he's, he's an intuitive writer, but there are people that say, okay, after one chord, you know, we need a four chord. After a four chord, according to the rules, we need a five chord. To me, I've never been able to work that way. It, it's horrible. For me, again, where the challenge was is being able to hear this music like the radio and then consciously transcribe that without interrupting the radio stream. It's like having a computer without multi-threading. I mean, it it was something that um, was very difficult. I I just couldn't do it. And then one night, (laughs) everyone's going to think this is weird. (laughs) No, not at all. No, not out loud. No, one night I had a dream that I saw Mozart and he was dying on the bed. And, you know, it was one of these lucid dreams where I knew I was from the future and I knew there was Mozart and there's no way I could be here. I don't know how I'm here. Maybe it's a time slip or shift or maybe I'm in a dream. I don't care, but I'm going to try to do whatever I can to save Mozart. So I was hoping that maybe, you know, I had some antibiotics or some modern medicine or something with me or nearby and I was looking around for this and I couldn't find it. So he dies in front of me and and I started sobbing in my dream and I, I felt horrible. And then I heard, I heard a voice in my dream that said, because of your benevolence, you shall have these gifts. So I woke up the next morning, and, and this is, everyone's going to think I'm horribly strange now, but <laughs> I was able to do it. I could listen to the music, and I was able to, at that moment, write down the stream and be able to engage the conscious and the subconscious at the same time to be able to crank this music onto the page without the music stopping in my head. So that's an inner space story. And, it, you know, psychologists will say, well, you, you have ambitions and aspiration to, to be like Mozart. And I, I can say, not really. I, I've lived longer than him. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's just an idea of how the mind works and how you have this inner space. And I said, Northern is about spaces. Our inner space is our, our most important aspect, I think, of being human. And I think so many people are afraid to just be comfortable being themselves and to be still for a minute and really examine what is it that they want to do. And for me, I've had a lot of these introspective moments and uh, that's just (laughs) goes with the territory with music. It's a solitary profession and, you know, maybe I have too much time on my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, Northerner, it's shaping up to be a landmark personal project for you. I was wondering, looking back at your work for gaming scores, is there anything that you were, you've ever worked on that became unexpectedly personal? Well, I always try to infuse as much of something genuine into my music as I can. Yeah, it depends on the game. I mean, I think I worked on a, a some kind of kids game called Easy Bake Oven and, you know, okay, well, what's that going to be? <laughs> you know, you got to write the banana song for Putt-Putt or whatever it is. You know, there's, there's certain things that are just a little beyond the reach of where I'm at in my normal demeanor. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I think my last couple of scores, I think my music has been progressively getting more close to my actual voice. I definitely felt inspired working on Skyrim and Guild Wars 2. And with that said, that's one of the reasons I decided to go ahead and start the symphony because I, you know, I felt I had enough of a personal message and a background to be able to put a work like this together. I just got to say how, I mean, you said that you were inspired to make those scores. Those are some inspiring scores, particularly the theme to Skyrim, because it doesn't matter what you're doing in your day. 
It yeah. really doesn't. You yeah. hear Once that it song. Once it comes on, you're just yeah. like, oh, no, hands on the you. hips, chest thrust forward. I am epic now. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's an inspiring piece. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that theme has evolved over the last three uh, titles. And there's a sort of a fundamental philosophy I have in my music when I'm working on games like that. I borrowed a little of this from John Williams. And John's never really gone out and said what makes his music very special. But, you know, the thing I, I hear in John Williams is I, I always hear a sense of optimism mm. in his music. No matter what. I mean, even those in the scary sections of his music, there's always some little nudge there that says, hey, this is Hollywood and we're going to have some fun. And so what I've tried to do in my narrative with music is I've tried to encourage the players so that they actually have a sort of a companion when they're playing these games. Because it is a bit of a solitary thing, you know. You you, you guys know you kind of lose your social life. I have no idea what you're talking about. What social no. life? Skyrim just <laughs> yeah, right. engulfs right. your social life. I played it for a hundred hours. I don't even think I've gotten anywhere close to starting the game. Actually, <laughs> you know, I even ended up playing it too, which was starting to endanger my ability to probably work on other games. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think I ate for but... a few days. It's pretty bad, actually. The thing about it is, is I wanted to create a sense of home for the player and that comes with sort of understanding a larger arc of the language of music and and i really do feel that said that music is a, um, a literal language you can be very precise uh, with music I, I did a little party trick somebody put me up to this but a director friend of mine started playing soundtracks to movies he knew i hadn't seen so he was playing the music for me and, and he asked me to describe what's going on in the scenes and I noticed that he started, his eyes started getting bigger and bigger because he played a piece of music for me. And I said, well, this scene's about a man who's been wrongfully in prison. He's surrounded by water and he's about to make his metaphorical and physical escape. It <laughs> <laughs> was a Shawshank and, Redemption, and, wasn't it? And, and he, he said, oh my God, that's Shawshank Redemption. I had no idea. <laughs> that's awesome. But Thomas Newman, is he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Now, what makes music work and what makes it not work is really the understanding of language and the sort of the prosodics of how music is put together mm. it's very much like speech and if you think about it speech is modulation it's modulation with meaning music is basically an entire spectrum of modulation that we can hear from 20 hertz upwards to 20,000 hertz if you're blessed with ears that good <laughs> so i mean that's why it's the, um, it's the universal language right I, it really it really is it's quite universal math um, and music as we have discovered today are the same thing oh, okay you know, one of my goals at, at some point is to be able to take what I know and, you know, I need to make a method that people can use to be able to do what I'm doing and a whole bunch more to go beyond where I'm at. Uh, because music composition should always start with ear training. It doesn't need to start with a slide rule and, a, you know, a gyroscope. It needs to start with something that you hear. I almost think that if there were sort of a Rosetta Stone of harmonic intervals, people could learn the building blocks as to what this means. What does it mean to hear a, a major six chord? What is a major six chord? Well, <laughs> you should know emotionally what it means as quickly as you know structurally what it is. And we're really missing that right now uh, because that's one of the most powerful tools that music brings to any experience is it brings the ability to induce emotion. I mean, right. trying to think like the first music that was ever created by humans was probably for an emotional reason like, like it was probably the sound of someone's skull slamming into a rock over and over. <laughs> yeah. this feels really good those were percussionists those were early drummers they haven't come yeah, that far no. music the way that it's being taught now 
they know the words, they know the building blocks, but they're not actually building anything with it. They're not creating architecture. Well, I think music is rarely being taught anymore, at least in public schools. So. We need more football. That'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they just just yeah, got to yeah. make sure that the football players don't know where the marching band congregates. Otherwise, it's it's just. A I mean, if the football team isn't good, though, the band members <laughs> suffer. So they've got to be a good football team too. <laughs> they got to so spend see, no, millions. No, you got to start having them. the marching band. Their mar- the marching band practice will play during football practice to inspire the players <laughs> to play better. I see. And every, every, everyone will win then. It sounds like if you give a mouse a trumpet. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we get into the monkeys and typewriter thing too after a while. But... <laughs> <laughs> Music's one of these things that you really have to have music in your life, you know, to feel normal. I've met a lot of people in the world that have said, you know, they don't like chocolate, but I haven't met anyone that doesn't like music. If the gift of music and the gift of creativity is within reach of all of us, then maybe we should look at this as a nation here in the United States. Really try to understand what we're doing when we cut funding for the arts. Mm. You know, when symphonic organizations are struggling to survive. I mean, one of the reasons I'm using Kickstarter right now is to raise awareness about the fact that, you know, symphony commissions aren't what they used to be. They just don't happen. You know, we don't have the count and countess or the duke or the king or whatever underwriting something for the benefit of the court. Yeah, that makes too much sense. (laughs) They they won't do it because it it makes... You're presenting too much logic. It It makes a lot of sense, right? It's so perfect. We're not doing it. (laughs) Well, you know, I think Winston Churchill, um, and I'm not quoting him exactly right, but they went to him and they said, you know, it was sometime during the war and they said, you know, Mr. Churchill, you know, we're trying to find funds for the war and we'd like to cut these arts programs. And he looked at him only in the way Winston Churchill could. And he basically said, what the hell do you think we're fighting for? (laughs) Good. That's a great goddamn quote. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that from someone. Someone will tell me I got it wrong. It's not Winston. But I think that mentality is what we all need to be instilled with, that we are self-actualized. We are capable of creating a new life for ourselves. And music is really one of the easy ways to witness that. Stay tuned for the rest of our interview with Jeremy Soule, as well as our spoilerific review on Bioshock Infinite coming this Thursday, April 11th. And remember, if you want to support The Northerner, just head over to Jeremy's Kickstarter, which is linked to this episode's page. You can get a lot of incredible rewards, including The Northerner on CD, autographed by Jeremy Soule. They may have reached their initial goal, but if they're going to record in one of the best-known orchestra-ready studios in this continent, they're going to need your help. Before we go, Nerdy Show's listener-supported, and there's some cool people out there with some much-needed props to be distributed unto them. Recently, March ended. It is now April in this recording, and... uh, Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) March was quite the month. You guys went overboard with support, and that is great. You know, we're listener-supported. Everything you give to the show comes back around, feeds into the Nerdy Show Beast, and uh, turns into... and makes us sound like that, like kind of like a crate dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine if we got that much... Every month. Oh my. We could do We could afford things. a great dragon. We could yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna give a shout out to everybody who made March and an absolutely incredible month. But also there were some folks who sent us some lovely messages as the uh, as the month wound down. Jeffrey Voss said, More support for my favorite nerdy podcast network. Currently waiting for more nuts and bolts as I'm catching up on the robo trades. Aw, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm so sorry that we don't have more nuts and bolts out there. Um, in fact, there was an, uh, an episode that should have come out last month. And you know what? As I was editing it, program broke and I lost everything and didn't have any time to recover um, putting that together. Now, I mean, it's not dead. It's coming out 
this month instead, but uh, we're a little bit behind. And suffice it to say that we're going to be covering the first issue of Robo. We don't really have enough time to take care of the entire first volume of Robo. So uh, look forward to us going back to previous Robo volumes in the future, but we've got brand new Robo to deal with. So uh, Somehow be... I think you're going to be able to deal with that problem, yeah. honestly. I mean, I know I can. Uh, we're going to be doing one about the free comic book issue, and also, if you guys don't know, there's an Atomic Robo iPhone game that's out there. You should totally check that out, as well as an exclusive Comixology Robo comic. It's a good day to be a Robo fan. Hugh O'Donnell said, always glad to help you guys out. Matt Odom said, never donated before, but have been recently listening to a lot of podcasts. Love State of the Empire. Hope to come to Orlando and visit sometime. Ooh, do it. We'll smack you with a lightsaber. (laughs) And by lightsaber, he means penis. I do. It'll be Brandon's, so you don't need to worry about it. You're not going to do a wield? Anyway, oh, God. Uh, uh, everybody supported us in March. Dumpstat, Mauron, Nova Nerd, Sean Red, Big Bad Shadow Man, Kevin Wise, Trench88, Walt Ribeiro, Man With Case, Arceus, Kahalas, Hoodoo Voodoo, Joe Barda, Cork, Starf, Brent Burchard, Andrew Bogue, Caitlin Kruger, Jeffrey Voss, Durafago, Matt Odom, and Hugh O'Donnell. Thanks so much, guys. That's so many is, people. Is that our yeah. supporters or is that the phone book? <laughs> <laughs> I lost track. Oh, wait, it, no, it is, it is and, the phone and book, it was, actually. It was okay. actually awesome. There were a lot of people in there who were first first time supporters and that means so much to us guys that you're helping us deliver more awesome content to you and just you know knowing the people out there like what we do and what we spend a lot of personal time on yeah that's really gratifying <laughs> i haven't a seen my of, wife in days a lot of personal time this is my day off <laughs> this is all of my personal time he it, would be masturbating if he wasn't here come on guys well again yes <laughs> i mean it's been twice today but i could have been up to six by now so thanks in April, we've only got one so far. Our wonderful honorary producer, Mauron, who said, First, I've become everything I hate now. <laughs> Except for supporting Nerdy Show. I like that part. And so do we. Since Colin's not here to say it, sir. Mauron! You're his number one son. We also got a cool thing going on in April. You know, every time we hit a $100 mark in our monthly support drive, like 100 and 200, etc., the person who pushes us over that threshold gets a microsode, 15 to 30 minutes where we talk about whatever you want us to talk about. A fan by the name of Garrier, well, he earned himself a microsode and he said, you know what? I want to give this to someone who isn't going to earn a microsode. Getting a microsode is a game of strategy, timing, and generosity. But this month, thanks to Garrier, all you're going to need is generosity. Because if your name is in the contributors list and you haven't earned a microsode, at the end of April, you could randomly earn a microsode. So this month, even a contribution of a dollar could make you a microsode in air. Remember, part two of this episode and the rest of our interview with Jeremy Soule is coming out this Thursday, April 11th at nerdyshow.com. In it, we talk about his early days at Squaresoft, and he tells us something about Secret of Evermore he's never told anyone before. Taking us out, we have another track from Overclocked Remix. This is a reimagining of the theme to Skyrim by Brandon Schrader. It's called Dovahkiin.
I think I know how I can uh, fix the laptop. <laughs> Slam it against the wall. Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is made possible by A Comic Shop, Nerdapalooza, and the generous support of listeners like you. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or making a contribution in our monthly support drives. Any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show voxophones and pictograms. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programs, community forums, kinetoscopes, articles, and more, head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes Store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.